This is Linux Reality, Episode 25, Windows Networking, Part 1. Welcome back, listeners. This is your host, Chess Griffin, and we have got a jam-packed episode this week. Uh, speaking of episodes, this is episode 25. Wow. That's sort of a milestone, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's not that many episodes compared to some podcasts, but I think it's pretty neat. I'm pretty proud of it, and I really have all of you to thank. Your support is what keeps me going, the emails, the feedback, the listener tips, and all the great conversations going on in the forum. So thank you so much for that. Again, that really is what keeps me going. I do appreciate it. I plan to keep chugging away, so so stay tuned. Uh, let's see, I've got a couple of housekeeping items I want to get to before I get started. Uh, first of all, it's the first of the month, so I mention this every month. If I'd appreciate it if you went to podcastla.com and cast a vote for this podcast. It's easy, it's free, requires no registration. You know, last month we got up to like 72 or 75, which is just totally awesome. I just couldn't believe it. I thank you so much. It really helps give Linux some good exposure. I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. I have received emails from people who said that they found this podcast through Podcast Alley. So the more exposure we can give give this show, gives, it really gives Linux uh, the, the exposure that I'd like it to have. And hopefully people can find us and find the forums and find other users and get some help. So thanks so much for that. I also wanted to mention that I now have a voicemail system set up. First of two, hopefully. Uh, what I've done so far is I'm using a service called k7.net. And it's a free voicemail for the recipient. Uh, the telephone number is a long-distance one, however, so those of you who who don't happen to live in Seattle, <laughs> uh, it's going to there's going to be a long-distance charge to call this number. Now, there's no surcharges or extra fees or anything. It's just whatever your long-distance company charges. The f- phone number is 206 206- 338-6359. That's 208, sorry, 206-338-6359. I've got it up on the main website on the homepage right there in the right-hand column. You know, it's funny. I try to get a vanity number, like, you know, 42Linux or something, um, but no such luck. Anyway, it, it, as I said, it's long distance. It will call you to cost the number. I don't know how much, of course. It's going to vary depending on where you're calling from, but... And, you know, sorry about the charge, but that's, I guess that's what you get for free. So my hope is to use this voicemail for, you know, you can call it to leave an audio comment, leave feedback, or even a listener tip. Uh, the only, I guess, catches with this is, first of all, you know, the quality isn't the best, but, again, it's free. And each phone call is limited to five minutes. But other than that, I think it'll work out real well. Now, I am working on other options. You know, I would mentioned the audio thing or, or something maybe web-based. I'm not quite sure yet, but, but just, you know, another option that may be you know, less expensive or something, just, just to give people multiple multiple options. So anyway, just wanted to let you know about that. So that's 206-338-6359. That's going to take me a while to remember that. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's see. Last week we took a look at various video players, video editors, DVD creation tools, all that good stuff. This week we're going to get down and dirty in the command line, setting up Windows networking. It'll be interesting, it'll be a little technical, and it will build on some things we've talked about in the past. But before we get to that, I'd like to play a promo for those of you that happen to work in IT in the educational field. I think you all might find this interesting. Do you like education? Do you like technology? Well, if you were to take the two and marry them together, the birth would be this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) 
So this is Cassian from the Server Room. I am Matt. And I'm Rich. And we do a technology podcast where we talk about technology and how it relates to education. We use our personal experience and uh, give you some tips, some tricks, some hints, talk about news stories. And have a little fun. Check it out by heading over to cis131.com slash podcast. Okay, so please check those guys out. They have a really great podcast. I've listened to it, and it's really good, very informative. And I'd like to thank those guys at Casting from the Server Room and also Kevin and George at In the Trenches for playing the Linux Reality promo. For those of you who don't know, I do have a promo. If you go to the About page on the Linux Reality website, about halfway down, there's a link to a promo. It's about a minute long, and a few people have played that, and I really do appreciate that. All right, with that, let's check out some listener feedback, starting with an audio comment from Mike. Message for you, son. Hey, Chess, it's Mike from Boca Raton down here in South Florida. I finally got my mic to work, so I wanted to send you a bit of audio feedback. First thing I'd like to mention is that your show is absolutely amazing, and just when you thought it was top-notch, it gets better. I would like you to know that I have told my friends about your podcast and that they all love it, even the ones who haven't even heard of Linux, which is kind of weird because Linux is so cool. Second, the three episodes on SUSE have helped me a ton. The only thing that was keeping me from using SUSE 10.1 instead of SUSE Enterprise Desktop was the XGL. I didn't know how to install it, so thank you for going over that. Well, I love your show and I am anxious for the next episode to come along. Third, I thoroughly enjoyed the segment on the Smart Package Manager. I was having problems with SUSE's, pa- with SUSE's Package Manager, and your segment on Smart fixed that problem for me. The last thing for now, since I want to keep it fairly short, is that you have led me to try KDE, and I absolutely love it. I have been using GNOME ever since my introduction to Linux, and now after trying KDE, I like it even better. Thanks, Jess. All right. Well, Mike, well, thank you so much for taking the time to record that audio comment. It's really appreciated, and I just really enjoy getting the audio comments. It's. I hope you all do, too. I think you do, the, based on the feedback I've gotten. It's great to hear from people in their own voices. And, Mike, I'm glad that you're enjoying the podcast and that uh, you know, you've told some friends about it and, and all of that and just kind of getting the word out. It really means a lot to me, and I do appreciate it. And it's interesting what you had to say about uh, moving from GNOME to KDE. I think that tends to happen. I think you know, I hear about more people going from GNOME to KDE than, than the other way around. And uh, m- maybe that's because, as you discovered, it sounds like KDE is, I think, probably a little bit more configurable, uh, has many more options, many more things you can do to customize it. People who like GNOME and, and, and others feel that it's too much, you know, but for some people, re- you know, there's a lot of people out there that really like that total control over the over the desktop environment. And KDE definitely gives that to you. So uh, anyway, thanks a lot, Mike. I sure do appreciate it. Okay, and now I've got an email from Josh. And Josh says, uh, I think it's great what you're doing and how you're approaching it. All too often I remember of when I first got into Linux and how hard it was to learn on my own without much assistance other than nitty-gritty books. I'm at work now and can't exactly sit down to record a tip, but I think this tip could help a lot of new Linux users just starting to get familiar with command line operations. A lot of people try to nurse into Linux OSs who are power Windows users and find themselves trying to use common Windows command line tools in Linux. Let's let's take 
dir, D-I-R, for example. In Windows, this will show you the contents of a directory. Most new Linux users know that ls is the equivalent to this, but a lot of converter types use dir out of habit. In other words, they type dir for when they're in Linux, when they mean to type ls. That's, that's I think, what Josh is saying. Uh, sort of how I type ls when I'm in Windows. <laughs> uh, the alias command is something I think could be very beneficial to a lot of new Linux users because it will ease them into the OS without frustrating them. Keep up the great work, Josh. And that's a great point, Josh, and it really builds on the great listener tip we had last week about the alias command. But I think what Josh is saying is you can make an alias command and say alias dir equals ls, and that way, when if you're used to typing dir, D-I-R, you will get an ls uh, listing, you know, a directory listing, and that might that might help that transition. So that's a great point, Josh. And speaking of last week's tip, by the way, I had a lot of people say they really enjoyed that. And it, it was a great tip. It was very well produced, if you will. Good content, good format, good opening, good closing, and it was very concise and excellent, excellent job. So I'm hoping that we'll hear more from them. And, and uh, uh, so stay tuned for that. And let's see. Last uh, email here, last little email here I've got is from David. And David says, Chess, thanks for the great podcast. Finally, Linux explanations that teach instead of confuse. Can you give us listeners an overview of how the kernel and GUI stuff fit together and work together? What's the hierarchy? Kernel at the bottom, then what? It's a bunch of layers, but I don't know where each one goes or which ones are interchangeable. I hope this question makes sense. Regards, David. Well, David, it definitely makes sense, and you are correct. Um, it's, it, it's my understanding to, uh, you know, that the entire Linux operating system is a level of layers, and I think most operating systems operate this way or work this way. And I'll kind of give you the concise, in a nutshell, summary of, of the way of the way it works. When you first turn on your Linux machine and it, and, it, and the bootloader starts up, and then you press the button to start Linux, the, one of the first things that will happen is that the kernel, the Linux kernel, will load. And if you watch the messages, a lot of times you can see it. You know, it will say "loading kernel" or something. The kernel, as I've said many times before, is sort of like the little brains of the operating system. If all of the if all of the tools and packages and programs comprise the Linux distribution operating system, the kernel is the heart and soul or the brains of that. It's what controls everything else. So you, it makes sense that the kernel gets loaded first. The kernel then initializes drivers and hardwares and starts you know, doing the things it needs to do to kind of get things up and running. And at one point, it will load up the shell. So the shell is the command prompt, if you will. It's a way to interact with with the with the machine with the at the lowest level you know you don't sit and type in you know binary code and all that you use a shell which then interprets your commands and passes them on to the machine so it would be the kernel first and then the shell and then if you decide to start a, a GUI interface the the X server or Xorg uh, is is the is the is the piece of software that that provides the basis for drawing graphical stuff and it's called Xorg, it's the X server, that will load up next. And then your X server, if you have it configured to run a login manager to manage your logins and your sessions, will start GDM or KDM or one of the other login managers. And then finally, uh, your desktop environment. Once you log in, then KDE or GNOME or XFCE or what have you will load. Uh, so, in a nutshell, that's kind of the way that those layers work, and there's obviously more detail than that, but that should give you a high-level 
perspective there. And they're not really interchangeable so much as they are, some of them are optional. I would say that, uh, at least for me, I just, I tend to boot to the shell. My machines don't go straight into the X server. So I just load the kernel in the shell and I typically don't use a login manager like GDM or KDM. What I generally tend to do is boot to the shell and then I'll log in as my user and then run start X, which will then start the X server and then my desktop environment that I've got configured, whether it's GNOME or KDE or what have you. And, but that's just the way I do it. So I skip the, you know, I skip the GDM. So some of those, some of those pieces are optional. Of course, you don't, you know, what type of desktop environment may change, but that's basically the order of things. So good question, Dave. Thank you so much. All right. Let's check out some listener tips. To start, press any key. Where's the any key? I see esk, kataral, and pigup. There doesn't seem to be any any key. Hi, my name is Alexandro from Mexico. My tip has to do with the run command. The run command is usually mentioned on manuals that want to install some application from the CD-ROM. So, for example, um, it will you, you have to put CD and then from the start menu, execute the run command and type something like the drive letter, like D column backward slash setup dot exe. Uh, this usually is a very quirky way of working the, the run command. And in Windows, well, there's no other option. On Linux, however, because of the way the file structures work, you can just uh, launch the run command and type whatever your application name is and it will just pop up on the screen. So for example, if we want to launch Firefox, we just go and hit Control F2, which is basically the the basic uh, keystroke setup for uh, launching the run command. Then type Firefox and hit the Enter key. This will put Firefox on your desktop. And that's it. That, that is my tip, and I hope um, many listeners uh, can work this tip out for the benefit. Hello, Linux Reality. This is Zero Signal with a listener tip about recording listener tips. If you'd like to record a listener tip, but you haven't got a single microphone anywhere in the house, there is a workaround. Take an old pair of headphones, not earbuds, plug them into the mic port on your computer, and talk into the left headphone. Seriously, check it out. Okay, uh, so let's see. Let's see. This week we're going to talk about Windows Networking Part One. You know, it's essentially when I started to make notes for this episode and, and think about it and jot things down, I realized that there's a lot to talk about, and it gets kind of technical. And I realized that it would probably be best if if I broke it out into two pieces. So this week we're going to talk about accessing your Windows computer from your Linux computer. And then next week, we'll talk about accessing your Linux computer from your Windows, so just the reverse. So let me take a few minutes here to kind of give some basic understanding and uh, sort of uh, relate back to some of the things we've talked about in the past and, and kind of put things into context as to what we're talking about and what we're not talking about, and then slowly kind of help to explain how you can connect to your Windows machine from your Linux machine. So what we're basically getting at here is, is, is networking between operating systems in order to share files or data. Uh, 
What we're now talking about is how to access data or how to share data across partitions on a single computer or on a single hard drive. So let's say you have one single computer at home that dual boots Windows and Linux. And, and you boot into Linux and you want to be able to access the data on the Windows side of things, on your Windows section of your hard drive. Well, that's a different problem, and that's probably a topic for another podcast. But that really involves sharing data between partitions on a single computer or on a single hard drive. But what we're talking about here is where you've got more than one computer at home, and you've got a Linux machine and a Windows machine, or maybe a Linux machine and a Macintosh or all three, something like that, and you want to be able to share data across the network between the various computers. That's what we're getting at. And when I talk about Windows, a lot of this will be applicable to, to the Macintosh as well. Macintosh also supports Windows networking, if you will, and a lot of what we'll, we'll be doing you can, you can also do with the Macs. You can share data between Linux and a Mac in pretty much the same way you would between Linux and a Windows machine. Okay. What we'll be talking about here is something called Samba. Samba is an open source project, dates back to the early 90s, and it's an open source implementation of basically the Windows file sharing protocol. You, if you run Windows, I'm sure you're aware of Windows file sharing and, and you know you right click on a folder to, to, to go to the sharing and you can turn on the ability to share a folder and then you can go into your network properties and turn on or turn off Windows networking and file sharing, file and print sharing. That's what we're getting at. Samba is a way to allow Linux machines to talk to Windows machines and vice versa across a network. And it, it is a, it's a tried and true um, uh, software package. It's, like I said, it's been around a long time. It works very well. It can be a little confusing sometimes to get set up initially. But once it's set up, it tends to be one of these set and forget things, at least in my experience. A lot of people have problems with Samba, but I think that once it's set up and once it works, you're done and everything will work just fine. Now, I think there are a couple prerequisites before you really go any further. First of all, and this kind of gets back to sort of the, I guess, sort of a general point about this particular episode, is that you need to have a good understanding of networking. You don't need to be a, a sysadmin, but you know I think you should be somewhat familiar with with the ideas of IP addresses and and LANs and and WANs and uh, uh, you know how to how to communicate between computers, setting up firewalls, opening ports, and all that. And also, you need to have a little bit of an understanding of the Linux file system and and mounting. Mounting shares, mounting directories, and the, the the Linux part goes back. If you want to go back to listen to the Linux file system hierarchy episode, that hopefully will help with that. As far as the networking stuff, I would recommend you listen to some of the older episodes of Security Now, which is a podcast by Leo Laporte and Steve Gibson. And some of their older episodes, they really get into the details of networking and ports and LANs and IPs and routers and all that good stuff. So. It, it, it is helpful to have some understanding of those concepts, and those are some of the things that I'll mention in this particular episode. Uh, so that's sort of you know a basis here. Okay, on to the prerequisites, on to the things that you ought to consider before you do anything further on your two machines. All right, 
And I'm going to use a hypothetical user here during the course of this episode. And let's call him Joe. And let's say Joe has a Linux machine running Ubuntu, let's say, and a Windows machine. And he has a music folder on his Windows machine with a bunch of music files, MP3s, that he would like to access from his Linux machine, maybe to play them or to copy them over or whatever. Okay, so the first thing to think about is networking the computers on the LAN. And what I mean is static IPs. I would recommend for purposes of setting up your network that you give each computer a static IP versus using DHCP. If you do that, then every time you reboot the computer, you're going to have a different IP. In, in other words, if you don't use static. And it makes it a little bit more difficult. It can be done. You can still network. You can do Samba with, with, with um, varying with different IPs, but it just makes life a lot easier. So on Windows, you would want to go into your network neighborhood or network properties for your network adapter. You know, go to TCP IP and right click on it, go to properties, and there should be a dialog box. I'm just doing this from memory. I don't have it in front of me, but um, there should be a dialog box where you can select, you know, obtain IP address automatically or set IP address um, manually. And so that's what you'll want. And you'll want to give it an IP address for an IP that's on your LAN. And I'm, you know, kind of assuming you're behind it, uh, say a network, you know, a, a, a NAT router. So let's say you have a NAT router facing the outside that that your that your internet connection comes into. And let's say your your network your router is 192.168.1.1. So maybe give your Linux machine 192.168.1.40 and your Windows machine 192.168.1.50. Okay, so let's say that's what Joe does. So he's got .40 is the, is the Linux machine and .50 is the Windows machine. Okay, that's the first thing. That's the first prerequisite. The second prerequisite is to consider your local, your, your software firewalls on the machines. F firewalls will block uh, file sharing if you don't make an exception. Now, I'm not talking about the firewall or on your NAT router or your NAT router itself. In other words, I guess what I'm getting at is on your local machines that are behind your NAT router, for purposes of setting things up and getting things working, I would turn off your software firewalls. You can always turn them back on later. Windows networking requires ports 137, 138, and 139, I believe, open. So you could, if you had, a, say, zone alarm on your Windows machine, you could decide to open up those ports to allow your Linux machine to connect through. But what I would do for it, what I would do instead is just turn it off for the time being. And if you got Windows XP, same thing. I know there's the firewall in there now with Service Pack 2, and I know you can enable file sharing. I would just turn it off. I would turn off all of your local firewalls on your machines. Again, and I'm assuming you're behind a NAT router. And I'm not talking about opening up these ports on your NAT router to the outside world. Uh, don't do that at all. But just internally, for the purposes of testing and setting things up, consider your firewalls. Consider turning them off. So that's the next prerequisite. The next one you've got to do is, of course, enable file sharing on your Windows machine. You've got to share. You've got to share that music folder. I mean, once you start looking for it, it's got to be there. So, 
on your Windows machine, Joe would go and find that folder and right-click on it and go to sharing and enable sharing. You know, and, and there's a place where you can give it a name if you want to give it a different name, but you know, just leave it at music, let's say. Just call that folder music. Uh, so let's see. So, so you've got the, so Joe's got the IPs set up static, turned off the firewalls, and has uh, enabled file file sharing on that particular music folder. And then the last prerequisite that I would consider is usernames and passwords, user management. I think, at least in my experience, the vast majority of problems that people encounter with Samba are in regards to user authentication. I think that tends to trip people up more than anything. And this is more of a problem with what we'll be talking about next week when you try to connect to the Linux machine from Windows. But it can be an issue on this end as well. So here's what I'd do, if possible. Give yourself a common username and password on all your machines. In other words, the same username, the same password. Make it a strong password, of course, and use that. Use those same credentials on every single machine in your network. And of course, I'm assuming a single user, and if you've got multiple users, that's going to complicate things a little bit more. You could have multiple users, and you just have to make multiple you know, logins on, multi, on various machines. And it's even further complicated if you want, you know, user A to access user B's data on another machine. But those are variants of all of this. This is just sort of the basics right now, and then we can build on this, you know, as we go along. So to make your life easier, and especially, and I know Windows doesn't require you to set up a user name and password. Most people log in as administrator with no password. But I would recommend not doing that. I would recommend giving yourself a username and a password on Windows. You can give yourself administrative privileges if you want, but uh, I would give yourself a username and a strong password and make it identical across all your machines. Trust me, it'll make life easier. Okay, so those are the prerequisites. Now, to actually do the connections. The first thing I would do from your Linux machine, well, two things. First of all, some... Linux distributions provide their own GUI tools for all of this, for, for Samba, just in general. I'm not talking about now specifically my little scenario. I just mean in general. Like, for example, in Yast, in SUSE, or the Mandriva Control Center. They have tools in there to enable Samba sharing and enable, you know, which directories are going to be shared on the Linux machine and all this kind of stuff. So I would definitely, if you have a distribution that has those own tools, I would investigate those. What we're going to be talking about in this episode is the command line stuff, because this, what we, what, what we will be talking about applies to just about every distribution. It's sort of a, a baseline of level of understanding, and, and it will be technical and it will be command line driven, but if you can do this, then you can use the GUI tools, no problem. Okay, back to our example here. Okay, so the first thing that I would do as Joe, now that I've done, taken care of all those prerequisites, is to, fi is to fire up Ubuntu. And don't do anything fancy. Let's just browse and see if we can see the network. Because most distributions nowadays have Samba browsing enabled by default, meaning you can just browse the network, just like in Windows. You know, if you've got Windows and you're on a network, say at work or something, and you click on Network Neighborhood or My Network or whatever it is, and you double-click on Microsoft Windows Network, you know, you'll see a list of machines, right? Same idea. That's usually enabled by default in a lot of distributions these days. And I know it is in Ubuntu. I have Ubuntu here at home. 
and uh, it, it's working just fine across my network. So in Ubuntu, what I would do is fire up. Well, let me actually. You, what you can do is you can go up to the menu and go to Places, and down to I think it's called Network Servers, and that will open up Nautilus, the file manager, in sort of network browsing mode. And in fact, in, in the in the URL bar, you'll see it says SMB colon slash slash. Remember that because you can type that into any browser. Well, you, I shouldn't say that. You should you can type that into most file managers in Linux as a way to start accessing the Samba network. So if you don't use GNOME, if you use KDE, let's say you're in SUSE now and you're using KDE, or maybe you're using Kubuntu, you know the KDE version of Ubuntu. Fire up Conqueror, and you can do one of two things in Conqueror. You can either in the URL bar type SMB colon slash slash, and it will start browsing the network. Or I think there's some tabs on the left-hand side of Conqueror, one of which I don't remember what it looks like offhand, but one of which takes you to a, a pay or a screen where you, where it will say network, browse the network or something, and you can double-click on that, and it does the same thing. It's just a shortcut. You know, it's just an, an an icon version of SMB colon slash slash. So the first thing that I would do as Joe in this hypothetical is in Ubuntu, go up to places, go down to network servers, and that will open up Nautilus, Nautilus browsing the Samba network and see if the Windows machine with the music folder shows up. And hopefully it does. Like I said, this should work out of the box for most people, assuming you've got the firewalls turned off, assuming you've got, you know, uh, again, the static IPs, you've got common users. I mean, you don't have to have the common users for, at this point. You'll still see the shares if you don't. But, again, uh, the that will make your life easier later. Okay, so if I think in this particular case you should see the music folder. Joe would see the music folder on his Windows machine at this point. He could double-click it, and it will go in, and you'll see all the music. And, you know, that's all well and good, should work just fine, but it may not be everything that you want. What, what a lot of people would prefer to have and what I would prefer to have is to have that directory mounted in my home directory at some point uh, and have it there whenever I reboot. Now, if you don't know about the mounting, again, go back to the Linux file system hierarchy episode where I talk about mounting, but really quickly, mounting is basically a way to connect to drives or to network drives or to servers or something. In, in Linux, Linux doesn't use drive letters. Everything is a, everything in Linux under the file system is a folder or is a directory. And what you can do is you can mount, meaning, you know, um, connect or bring online different devices, whether it's a hard drive or a CD-ROM or a USB stick or a folder across the network, you tell Linux where to mount that device, whatever it is, and you give it a folder name. And you say, okay, Linux, when I put in my USB stick, I want you to mount it at a folder called USB stick that's in my home directory. And if you get it set up right, it will do that. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here. So in my hypothetical example, Joe would want to create a folder in his home directory called music and what he'd like to have is to be able to go to that folder whether it's just browsing through Nautilus or Conquer or whether he's say running a music player and and you know wants to you know and clicks open 
to open a file and wants to navigate to that folder and see his music that's over on his Windows machine. That's what you'd like to have. So, so we've got to mount this Samba share is what it's called. The, 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 the folder on the, on the Windows machine is called a share and we're using Samba to, to access that share. And so we're going to mount the Samba share. And in order to do that, there's a few things that we need to do. Now in Ubuntu, I think, I think this should be set up out of the box, but we're going to double check. And if, and if not, we're going to install a package from the internet. And for other distributions, we can check to make sure that you've got everything installed correctly. What we're going to want to do is we're going to install a package called SMBFS, Samba File System. I think that's what it stands for. So in Ubuntu, Joe would type the following. He'd open up a terminal. That's the little DOS-looking box. And he types sudo. That's super user do. So that, that means what's coming up is a, is a root command that, that requires administrative privileges. So sudo space apt dash get space update. And that will update his repositories to make sure he's got all the latest package information. Hit return, and then sudo space apt get install smbfs, and that should install the Samba file system package. That will allow Joe to mount and unmount this Samba share wherever he wants. All right, next step. He's going to create the directory in his home folder where he wants this music to appear. So either with Nautilus or Conquer, you can, know, you can go into your home folder, right-click, and create a new directory, create a new folder, call it, call it music. Very easy. That's the second step. Okay, so we've got SambaFS installed, and now we've got the directory in on the Linux machine where we're going to mount the Samba share. And that directory that Joe just created is called a mount point. That's, the, that's where the share is going to be mounted. So home slash Joe slash music. That's the mount point. Okay, the next step is to change some permissions on, on two little packages, two little applications, to allow Joe to mount and unmount the Samba share as a regular user. And the reason we want to do that is if, if, you know, if, if he has to go into root to mount, then the privileges might be messed up on the, on the mounted share. We want Joe to be able to do everything without having to use root all the time. So we have to change permissions on SMBMNT is a is a particular application, and I'll explain how to do this in just a minute, and SMBUMOUNT. Those will let Joe do the SMB mount command and the SMB U-mount command. That's the, those are the two commands to mount a Samba share and unmount a Samba share. So this is what Joe will want to do. Again, opening up that terminal, and the first line he'll want to do is sudo space chmod change mod that is space u plus s space slash usr slash bin slash smb mnt hit return and then the next line is sudo space chmod space u plus s space slash usr slash bin slash smb umount so what we've done is change mod U plus S, change the permissions to allow Joe to 
execute these two commands, SMBMNT and SMBUMOUNT, those two packages, I should say. They have different commands in them. Those will allow Joe to mount and unmount the Samba share. Okay, so that's the third step. So, so far, just to recap, we've installed SMBFS. Joe has created a mount point in his home directory called music. And as root, as sudo, using sudo, he's changed the permissions on SMBMNT and SMBUMOUNT. All right, so at this point, let's test it out. So now Joe will want to open up a terminal and just as his regular user, so not doing sudo, just type in the following, S-M-B-M-O-U-N-T, so that sort of stands for Samba Mount, space, slash, slash, 192.168.1.50, that's the IP address of the Windows machine in my little example here, slash music. So we've designated the uh, IP address of the Windows machine and the folder on the Windows machine. Space slash home slash Joe slash music. The mount point that Joe just created and hit return. Now that, and I, it may, should prompt him for his password. Type in the password. Again, this should be the same password on both machines. And that share should now be mounted in his home directory. And Joe can just browse it just as if it was on his local machine. You never know. And can play the music, delete, create new files, copy, move, all that good stuff. Everything should be good to go. The only problem with what we've just done is that when he reboots, that mount point will be gone. The directory is still there. He created the directory called folder, but the contents won't be there. You've got to reconnect every time, in other words. That may not be helpful. You may want to have it reconnect automatically at boot. So if we want to do that, we've got to take one more step. Well, it's kind of a two-step process. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be editing a file called Etsy fstab, so slash etc slash fstab. The fstab file is in the Etsy directory. And this particular file lists all the, all the devices that are mounted at boot. And you'll see your root partition, maybe your home partition if it's on a separate partition, and all this other stuff. You'll see hard drives and disk drives and floppies and whatnot as mount points and things that can be mounted at, at various stages. The fstab file will list all that. We're going to make a new entry, basically recreating what we just did with a few little changes. And the most important change is the following. You know when you did the SMB mount space slash slash 192.168 and all that, it prompted you for the password. That's what that's what happened when Joe just did that. Well, of course, it knew that Joe, the user, was doing that command, and it was asking for Joe's password. Well, when you boot it up, when you when you put it in fstab, you need to consider who's going to be doing that, that mounting. If you just leave it as is, it's going to be mounted by the root with root permissions, and that's not what you want. So we're going to want Joe to be able to have privileges over this mounted share that's that's mounted in the fstab file. So one way to do it, and this is not the way to do it, but one way is in the fstab file, and I'll explain the convention here in just a minute, but sometimes you'll see this on the internet. People in the fstab file will have all this, this, this one long line, and you'll see a username and password in there. 
you could do that, but that's not advisable because the FSTAB file could be read by anybody. It has root write permissions, but it's can be. I think it's got six four four permissions. I'm not sure, but it, it's not a locked down file, and we don't want your username and password in a file that's not locked down. So what we're going to do first is create a little file. The root user is going to create a little file, and we're going to put Joe's username and password credentials in it. And then in the FSTAB file, we're going to reference this little file with the with the credentials in it. So here's what we do. Joe fires up his terminal. All right. CD, that's change directory, space, slash etc, slash samba. So Joe has just changed to the etsy slash samba directory. Now, we're going to use the nano text editor. It's a very simple text editor. You just use your regular keyboard and the arrow keys to move around. Return, delete, backspace, all that stuff should work. When you're all done, you hit Control-O to save. And it's at the bottom it tells you these, these control commands. Control-O to, to, to write it out, to save it, and then Control-X to, X to exit. Okay, so we're going to create this little file with the username and password in it. So Joe, as root now, in the etsy slash samba, he's going to do sudo space nano space dot, that's period, period smb passwd. With the dot in the front, that's going to make this a hidden file when we're done with it. Okay, nano will open up, and he's going to, Joe enters two simple little lines. Username equals Joe on the first line and hits return. Password equals, and then he types in his password. Control-O to save it, Control-X to exit. All right, so now we've got a little file with Joe's username and password in it. Before we do anything more, we've got to change permissions on that file so nobody else can read it. So now Joe types sudo space chmod space 0600 space dot smb passwd and that will change the permissions on that file to 600 which as you may remember from the file permissions episode is what is that read and write root has read and write privileges only everybody else has zero nothing okay hopefully you're with me so far now i should stop and say when i when i'm using the sudo command that's sort of unique to ubuntu and obviously, whenever you execute sudo on Ubuntu, it asks you for the root password. So I'm just assuming you know that and you're typing in the root password. If you're not using Ubuntu, rather than doing sudo all the time that I've been saying, just in your terminal type su return, your root password return, and then you'll be root in that terminal. And until you close that terminal, you'll continually be root. So from then on, you don't need to continue typing SU or sudo or anything, you can just do all this stuff and you'll be doing it as root. And hopefully you should know that, you know. So anyway, for hopefully that helps. Okay, back to the back to this. We're almost done now. So we've saved a little file. We've made a little file called dot smb password or period smb passwd with Joe's credentials in it. And with the period that makes it a hidden file, so nobody can see it. And then we also changed the permissions on it to 600. So only root has read and write privileges. Everybody else can't access it. All right. 
Now, Joe's going to do the following. He's still in the Etsy slash Samba directory. CD space and then two periods. And what that does is it changes directory to the next directory up a level. So in other words, he's in Etsy slash Samba. And by doing CD space period period, you'll just be in the Etsy directory. You'll have gone up a level. And now Joe's going to type the following sudo space nano space fstab. That's F S T A B. That's editing the fstab file. And you'll see all these mount points. Scroll all the way down to the bottom and type the following slash slash 192.168.1.50 slash music space slash home slash joe slash music space smbfs space credentials equals slash etsy slash samba slash period smbpassswd comma user comma rw comma auto uh, space zero space zero and then control zero to save it and control X to exit what we've done now in that line is we've designated the first bit is the Windows IP address and, and directory that we're going to access the next little piece is the local mount point that's in home Joe's home directory SMBFS we're telling it to mount using the Samba file system. Then the next little piece is we're, we're telling FSTAB to use the login credentials that are in that hidden file we just made, the .smb password file. Uh, the RW means read-write, mount it with read-write privileges. User means that the user Joe will be able to mount and unmount this particular mount, mount the share. And then auto means it will be auto automatically mounted when you boot up the computer. If you don't want it automatically mounted, type no auto. I mean, put no auto in that line instead of auto. And then you'll still need to manually mount it, just like we did 20 minutes ago. <laughs> uh, this episode dragging on, I'm sorry. But hopefully you'll find this helpful. And that's it. That should do it. That Now, occasionally, I've run into issues where you have to change... You have to add some stuff to that FSTAB line that we just did a minute ago regarding the user ID or the group ID or various DMASKs or FMASK settings. Those are all deal with permissions. But hopefully what we've got so far, will you'll see it mounted at boot and it will be there. If you run into any read-write privileges problems, you know, permissions problems, then you'll have to investigate and maybe we can discuss that in the, in the forums. But... If you if you set up a username and credentials on the Windows machine that's that are identical to your Linux credentials, same username, same password, and if you've given that username administrative privileges on the Windows machine, you shouldn't have any rewrite problems. I mean, with what we've done so far, that should work just fine. And uh, so that and then you know uh, that in a nutshell is a way to to create a a Samba share. A, a mount point to to mount a Samba share and also how to set it up so it mounts on boot using the Etsy slash FSTAB file. Very technical, I know. Very detailed. 
I apologize, but there's really no other way to do it. And, you know, if you don't want to get into all of this, again, remember, you can always, assuming your distribution has Samba client set up, like Ubuntu does and like SUSE does and Mandriva and most distributions these days, you can just use your file manager to navigate using the SMB colon slash slash stuff I mentioned a, a little while ago. And you can just browse, you know, or if you're in, in Ubuntu, just go up to places and down to network servers and just browse and you should see your network. You should hopefully see it and access your data that way. You know, it's not mounted, so you don't have a permanent connection. You just have to browse every single time. But if that works, that should work just fine. What this is getting at is if you want a permanent solution so that those shares are automatically mounted every single time. All right. We've talked enough. It's been it's been a lot. I know. I, again, I hope you found this helpful. I'll be curious to see. Next week, you know, we'll get to more details. So, But we'll hold off on that. It's time to wrap it up. Well, thanks again, everybody, for helping me get to 25 episodes. I can't believe it. 25. Wow. Quarter of a century. I mean, it's nothing compared to some people like those great guys over at Linux Link Tech Show. They just did episode 150, if you can believe that. I can't believe it. It's unbelievable. But I would not be doing this if it weren't for you all and for your support and your donations and all of that. I really do appreciate it. I just I can't thank you enough. Um, you can send me general feedback, audio feedback, listener tips, anything you want at linuxreality at gmail.com. Or you can call a new voicemail number, 206-338-6359. I really am curious about that. And if you have an opportunity to call it, that'd be great. I just, I really want to see how that sounds. All right. Next week, boy, I'm tired after doing this. I mean, I hope, <laughs> I hope it's not as tiring listening to it. Next week, we'll talk um, more Samba. Another one, and this will be accessing your Linux machine from your Windows machine. And it's a little bit more complicated. <laughs> so uh, hopefully I'll be able to cover that in, in enough, in enough uh, detail. Um, but anyway, until then, this has been Linux Reality, Episode 25. Catch you all next time. Bye-bye.